Welcome to How It All Started podcast in North Iowa. My name is Eric Nganyanke. My special, special guest today, David Grotes, Counselor, welcome to the show. Yeah, thank you very much for having me. Man, I'm excited today about this. I think I've been excited about this conversation for a while. We've been talking about it for a long time, but we finally got a chance to sit down and do it. And uh, I appreciate your time, man. You're a busy guy. Uh, we all are. And for somebody like you, I'm going to dedicate as much time as I can. <laughs> <laughs> for some reason, I thought you were born in Mason City. No, um, my dad and mom met at Central College and uh, down in Pella. And then uh, moved uh, to Knoxville, right out of which is just down the road, like ten miles away, uh, where my dad became the youngest county director of the Department of Human Services in the state at the time, mm-hmm. and um, that was kind of short lived. And he had a uh, job offer in Pocahontas County. Um, back then, they had a Department of Human Services in every county, and so he. Uh, took that opportunity and he and my mom uh, went to Pocahontas. You might ask, since that's a county seat, how come I wasn't born in Pocahontas at their county hospital? And the answer is back in 1973, they didn't let men in the delivery room and my dad wanted to be able to see uh, me be born. And so they went to the next county seat over, which was Humboldt, so that he could be in the delivery room and the rest, as they say, was history. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow. So yeah. you, your dad was like, man, I need to see my son. It's been born. Yeah. And whatever count I can go to, that's what's going to happen. That's exactly what he did. So sometimes people say, oh, you were born in Humboldt. Do you know this person or that person? It's like, no, I don't know anybody because uh, I was just there sort of on a, a one-time basis. But yeah. Uh, yeah, it was pretty interesting, really. And I did not even know that background, that main way, and I even allowed in the liberal. I mean, I think that that's just one of those things that changes with the times. Yeah. You know, I was there for all three of my children being born, which I was really thankful for. You know, with respect to back at how it was in 1973, I'm guessing it just was a whole different ball game. Did, did you ever talk to your father about why was that so important for him to be in the liberal? Well, you know, dad was a social worker by training, and I think that value of family, viewpoint of the human being, and from the birth to the death, the whole thing in between. So I think he really wanted to be a part of that and uh, took it really seriously. One thing I know about the conversation like me and you had in the last couple of years, about 90% of the time when we have a conversation, somehow, somewhere, your dad always come up. Yeah, yeah. And I can tell how influential your father was in your life. Yeah, very much so. How long ago since he passed? Uh, he passed in 2015, November 25th, 2015, uh, just right after, the day after Thanksgiving. Is it tough for you to celebrate Thanksgiving? You know, it really was at first. And uh, as it goes on, just like everything, I think that we as humans just are uh, one big callous as we go in time and uh, learn how to deal with things. You know, the first one was pretty hard, and I went up to hospice and just kind of sat in their waiting room back in the day where you could just walk into hospice, yeah. into the hospice house. Uh, I did that on the on Thanksgiving Day just to feel close to 
where dad passed the year before. And then you fast forward to now where it's not quite as, as much. I mean, I think of them every day. Thanksgiving is sort of amplified because it's, it was the day after I have always decided to, even right after uh, he passed, I decided to do three things every day. And that was to remember something that he taught me. That was first thing. And I also tried to remember something funny, which was pretty easy because dad had a great sense of humor. And oh, really? a lot of times I was the butt of his jokes. But <laughs> anyway, uh, but uh, and then also something to be um, moved to tears about or to at least be emotional about because it was such a big loss. To, uh, he was a huge part of my life. I was so lucky to not lose very many people for a very long period of time. For my story, I was 40 years old and still had all my grandparents except for one alive, which meant that my own children knew their great-grandparents and knew them very well. Oh, wow. So uh, you look at the things that you get and you look at the things that you don't get and you try to always appreciate what you do have and uh, understand that we all have that part of our story that there's some hard parts as well. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, how old was your pops when he passed? Yeah, 67. So pretty, oh, young. yeah, pretty young by today's yeah. standards. Yeah, was he sick? Yeah, uh, what happened was he in January of 2015, he was having a hard time walking, and he had a lot of tests done, and couldn't figure it out, couldn't figure it out. So he finally went to the Mayo Clinic, and then they said you have that he had Lou Gehrig's disease, and so that's a very fast moving, of course, and fatal disease, and so it gave him some time to get his affairs in order, but it moved pretty fast from September 1st, 2015, where he was diagnosed um, until about 90 days later oh, wow. um, when he was gone. So uh, that it was a really fast-moving thing. Man, 90 days is a very short period of time. Yeah. Did you get a chance to, because that probably hit you very fast, like, hey, you only got 90 days with your father. Yeah. Um, what I told myself is I went over uh, to see him and I said, you know, you got a really unfortunate and really sad situation that's been put in front of you, Dad. And I just want you to know that I'm going to do everything I can to help you. For the We didn't know how many days were left, of course, at the time. But I said, I'm going to be here for you. And I'm also going to basically not have you do it alone yeah. so uh, even though it tears you apart inside you just want to go and be there for the person and be strong for them and be honest i was able to say things like i'm really upset yeah. i'm really sad and sometimes i remember one time i told him i wish i was i wish we could just change places and he said oh, that really? yeah he said well that's about the dumbest thing you said but uh <laughs> but i told him i said yeah but with a loved one really want to take it away yeah but, did you tell him that because uh it was it was so much pain for you yeah to the point, i mean like uh you rather be gone than him be gone because there, there's mm-hmm. a there's a part of that is a little bit selfish because for him it will be probably a lot of more pain mm-hmm. for him to see his kids gone before him yeah I think I think it I think it is when you uh, it is grief is the whole concept of grief whether it be yeah. you know d- 
denial or yep. anger, bargaining, all those things are about us. And with, you know, just like all emotions are, they're mm. about ourselves. And that was, of course, death being one of the primary uh, emotional oh, yeah. roots. And so I know that I was, I know that I was speaking uh, from emotional, uh, just from an emotional standpoint. Yeah, yeah. But it's really hard just to see somebody in that position. And Dad was a guy that laughed all the time and smiled all the time. And I probably saw him smile once or twice authentically after his diagnosis. And so for ninety oh. days, it's just you know not really any laughs, not really any authentic smiles and and that in itself just that sort of nonverbal communication was so telling and so moving and part of you know the ultimate story did the doctor tell you guys like hey you have very short window here no what they did is they they gave a disease name called motor motor neuron disease which we of course call ALS or uh Lou mm. Gehrig's disease we did some research and it said, well, there's three or four different varieties and some go for a number of years and some go um, you know, less and less time. And I thought, well, okay, well, maybe we got the one that you could go five, six, seven years with or something like that. No, instead he got the one that was extremely quick. How did you process that when at that time, when you knew like, okay, I'm about to lose him? You know, I think there's two ways. First of all, it's surreal. It feels almost dreamlike in a way. You just can't really believe it's happening. You read about it, hear about it, watch movies about it, and have kind of prepared yourself as you got older to for folks to uh, that are important in your life and your family to to pass. But when it actually starts to happen, I kept using the phrase, "This is where the rubber hits the road." Yeah just really sort of unbelievable but yet it was moving in real time so fast that we just didn't have time to really think about it as much as just do it and so i'm not sure that anybody is aware of this yet but i am an attorney and i just decided to go into lawyer mode whether it was when i was dealing with my mom or when i was dealing with my dad just decided that i just didn't wasn't any help to anybody if i wasn't going to be not able to function. So mm. I just wanted to function at my top level. And so I just said, I'm going to go into lawyer mode. That's and that, tough. yeah, it was tough, but I felt like it really resulted in the, the best possible I could, which was to try to be as strong. And it sounds weird, but positive when it comes to my dad and to my mom, knowing that there's only so much positivity you can put into it. It's easy to be positive if things are going good. How do you stay positive when the person you love, you know you're about to lose him? How do you even go to the office and work? Yeah. I, th I think for me the uh, process was that I'm always a cup half full kind of mm. a person, not a cup half empty. So even though there's that cup, half of the cup that's empty, and we can sort of dwell on that, I instead look over and say, I want to I want to just really focus on what I do have and you know in my case I had a, really the one of the greatest people in my life be my father and be a friend and be a counselor to me as far as uh, business as far as personal as far as just really everything and so I got sort of the pick of the litter when it came to that and so I was just really appreciative of everything I did have 
I was appreciative for him too that he was able to retire early and got some uh, additional years. He would have otherwise he might not have even been retired mm. in some people's uh, in some people's occupations, and yeah. so he was able to get that. So how I was able to do it is just really stay focused on just what we did have, mm. and like I said, thirty. 60, 90 days I was able to have to be able to say, I remember one time I was leaving hospice in the evening and nobody else was there except for dad and I, and I turned around and said, dad, is there anything else that you wanted to tell me at all? And he said, he looked at me and he said, nope, uh, I don't. And is there anything oh, wow. that you want to tell me? And I said, no. And I thought, oh, wow. wow, that's pretty, that's pretty powerful that's right powerful. there because if you did, those would be that'd be the time to do it. Nobody around, and knowing that he wasn't going to be able to beat this, um, and never going to go able to go home again, and just sitting there in, in that in that moment, knowing that geez, the air is completely clean when it comes yeah. to this, and um, I'm not a perfect person. Dad wasn't a perfect person, but I, to the extent that. We all are imperfect. I just had a, a great, a great father. Wow. wow. That's, that's powerful. The fact, because most of us, when we lose the loved one, we don't get the chance to tell them everything. So the fact that your father was able to tell you everything and you are able to tell him everything, that's the peaceful way I want to go. Yeah. Well, I mean, you, you kind of look to yourself for the end of any of our lives and the quick way is easiest on the person passing and hardest on the family and i think and the long drawn out way is uh you know easier on the family but harder on the person uh, we never get to pick our way but i mm -hmm. thought to myself if dad would have had a heart attack like his two of his uncles did and just die on the spot as we all know things such as car accidents yeah. and things like that i'm just so lucky that i had those and again, those just, moments. yeah, those moments and being able Man. to focus on that positivity uh, as it comes to that. So the, the way I kind of understood that a little bit is like the best way to process something like that is thinking about it could be worse. I think so. I mean, I think it's also important. I'm a big believer in processing grief and mm -hmm. Some people use maybe that lockbox approach where they just take their emotion and put it somewhere and just let it sit there, and then they don't have to process it. Mm. But I'm also a believer that for a lot of us, not everybody, but for a lot of us, you have to uh, eventually take that out. And someday, if you didn't get to process it, it might be worse by yep. that point. Yeah. And so I just think to myself, I didn't, I think there's a, there's a fine line between being positive and been being realistic and yes. being honest. Yes. And so I was again, able to every day, that's how I did that. I was positive by you know, also, geez, also process it. Right. I spend some portion of every morning before work in doing things that that's just me, like playing a guitar or like yeah. uh, reading or like meditating and during that time was always a, a good opportunity on a daily basis to sort of plan to let some emotions out. And so sometimes I would deliberately play a song that reminded me of him or read mm. something that reminded me of him or even took a piece of his clothing uh, or actually have his cell phone still plugged in to this oh, day. Really? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, pull that out and read, read, you know, look through or just kind of just feel comfortable yeah. in the moment and and then keep him do, close. Yeah, keep him close, and then do some uh, real grieving at the time. And yeah. so, 
you know, fast forward to even just uh, within the last uh, few days, we had some opportunity to do some moving around in our house of some boxes and some tubs. And there was a stuff of um, some of the stuff of my dad's that was way too big for me, but I kept it. It was an opportunity to finally just say, okay, well, I'm ready to kind of get, get that moved along to somebody else that can use it. And, mm. and I think, again, that's sort of meaningful to me in the sense of it, reminds me that I've really done a good job trying to process it through because yeah. again, I've seen it so many times, even just other people or what I, uh, in my personal life or in my professional life. And if you let it fester and not able to grieve, and sometimes you can't, there were times in my life, like you're saying that I just couldn't grieve because of the timing and things like that. And yeah. because of that, uh, it just got, to me, uh, exponentially worse. So that's kind of, I was able to really grieve and do it and feel as processed as possible. Yeah. How about your mom though? Uh, How is she doing? Yeah. Yeah. She's doing, um, a a really good job. Dad said to me, um, she will uh, bounce back pretty quick, I believe. And, and she did, um, she just keeps herself busy. Um, she, it does a lot of stuff around the house uh, as far as hobbies yeah. like puzzles and reading and have birds she does she has birds outside that oh, she okay. uh, likes to feed and so she keeps herself busy with things and she she bounced back pretty quick okay and i think she's processed pretty well as um as best to be expected when you lose a spouse oh yeah yeah are you the only child well, we come from a combined family, and okay. so I'm a only child of my biological mother and father, and then um, I was able to gain three step-siblings when my um, stepmom and dad got married. Going by year, I think it was 1982, but I was just a little shaver at the time. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so you got you, you, so you basically grew up in uh, Pella? Area? Oh, no. Um, no. Pella is where my dad and my biological mom met. met. And then um, when my dad moved uh, and my biological mom moved to Pocahontas for his first job, then I was born in Humboldt, but we lived in Pocahontas, which is, oh, I don't know, 10, 15 miles apart, Humboldt and Pocahontas. But anyway, then uh, my dad and mom eventually did get a divorce. And so my dad... Uh, was, oh, your, bi- your biological mom? Yeah. And your dad, okay. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then my dad uh, met, at the time, I was just a little first grader, but I had a playmate in the neighborhood, and his mom was also recently divorced, and so they started uh, going together and then eventually got married, and so I inherited my uh, stepmother. So when did you guys move to Mason City? Well, we moved to Mason City in 1984, um, oh, okay. and... That was when my dad got another job, which was uh, here in Mason City as the uh, county director. Well, he wasn't at the time. He became the area administrator of this uh, few. It was a few counties up in this area. Okay. You were about what? Seven? Let's see. Seven. I would seven. have been about 11 when 11 I moved when here. You, you yep. moved here? Mm-hmm. Why did your dad decide to settle Mason City? He worked... In Mason City, and so I think that since uh, the Department of Human Services had a different, definite way that 
um, jobs came available. And since the next job down when his job got eliminated in Pocahontas was one here in Mason City, he grabbed that. And so it was kind of made for him. Um, and so he we just sort of followed along. I got lucky because I lived in Pocahontas, and then for a year we lived in Clear Lake while he was deciding where he wanted us to live, and then Mason City. And so I only had to really move twice, and but basically grew up here in Mason City from fourth grade and graduated here, then um, went to the University of Iowa for undergraduate and law school, and then moved back to Mason City in 1999. And so I've been here uh, for forever. Yeah, forever. <laughs> exactly. What, what did you study on uh, undergrad? I wasn't sure what to take. And here's another story of my dad. He came down and during orientation, I was kind of flustered and he just grabbed a book and wrote as many general classes as he could on a piece of paper. Yeah. And I still have the piece of paper. And he oh, said, really? yeah, he said, now just pick four or five from here and then that'll get you a good start and you can kind of decide what you wanted to do. Well, I took a bunch of different classes, kind of like political science because I really enjoyed it at the time. And so I was not knowing exactly what I was going to major in. I did take a few business classes because I always kind of liked that. And But then it got to be to the point almost to the day that you had to make your mind up and my roommate at the time said, I think I'm going to go into accounting. How about you? And I said, well, that sounds good to me, too. And so I just went and, and uh, went into accounting. And so I hadn't taken any in high school. I think I had to take one at, at the business school just to be in the, in the business school. And yeah. so then when he said he was going to major in it, uh, I thought to myself, it sounds like a good idea because it's a pretty in-demand position. And so... I went along with it. <laughs> <laughs> Kids, that's how it always started. That's right. That's right. <laughs> Did you get your CPA then right after you graduate? N no. Um, I took the road less traveled in a lot of ways, and one of and that's actually who, which is what made has made me who I am, is to do things a little bit different than everybody else, I suppose. Mm -hmm. But uh, one of the things that was different is my now wife and I uh, started dating and uh, in undergraduate, okay. as at the end of undergraduate, our daughter was born uh, right, in, right after I graduated from uh, the University of Iowa undergrad. Um, during those last months of my then senior year, um, we I didn't have the opportunity to study for the CPA exam because I was sort of taking care of my wife as far as getting her comfortable and things yeah. that she needed and things like that. And so, in fact, I waited to take the CPA exam until my last semester of law school, which I probably wouldn't recommend for anybody. Whoa, 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 whoa. So you already deep in law school? I was done with law school pretty much. I was in my last semester of law school, and my wife looked at me and she said, now what about that CPA exam? Are you going to ever study for that? And I said, well, I haven't touched it in three years. And she said, I understand, but this is the time to do it if you're ever going to do it. And I said, well, I put my last semester in law school really easy with a pretty light class load. And she said, well, that might actually be an advantageous to you. So... Back in the day, they didn't 
they had classes that you would take to study for the CPA exam, but I didn't have really the time. And so I went over and talked to my professor and she said, uh, well, there's this new thing out called a compact disc that you can put into a computer. If you can study discipline that way, I've heard really good things about this particular program. And so I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try it. And so every day I hauled that computer to the University of Iowa Law School. And after class, I would sit down and do two hours worth of uh, CPA exam work. And uh, so in that May of my senior year, I took the CPA exam and then took uh was able to take about a month 30 days off and then i had to study for the bar exam and so i had a really uh, you look back at it now and you're like how did i ever do that that's crazy yeah i don't i mean and while having a, a family at the same time and you know trying to uh, balance all those things but uh I was able to pass all the CPA exam parts the first time and then the um, the the bar exam as well and so wow. I uh, I'm I'm glad that that's done now. I Man. don't I don't know how I would do it again <laughs> at this point. So anyway, that's incredible because there's a very few people that I know that they actually CPA and lawyers. Yeah, it's pretty rare. It's a really good combination to mm -hmm. have. Part of it for me is you were told how stressful the law profession was going to be. And I thought to myself, I better have something to fall back on just in case. Oh, uh, okay. They, so that was kind of the yeah. thinking process. Yeah. I, I wasn't sure if I was going to like it or not. And I thought, well, I had better uh, be careful when it comes to that. And then found out later that it's a really, really good combination to have, yeah. uh, especially if you're in in office practice where you're doing transactional work for people, um, mostly paperwork and, and not a lot of court work in yeah. that sense. And so when you're doing that, then people really appreciate having that CPA background as well. Did you take the bar after you moved to Mission City? Uh, no. Or you were still in there? Yeah, my lease terminated at uh, July 31st, which is, happens to be when the bar exam was uh, ending during that time. So you basically you take the test then go back home and finish packing and then move to uh, whatever you want to go. That's right. Okay. So that's when you moved to uh, Mason City. Did you mm -hmm. did you know when you were studying law, did you know what do you want to, what area of law you want to practice? Or? Well, when I was studying, I uh, when I was take, in law school, I was kind of focused on where I would go. And so I would go into the placement office and say, I want to go back to Mason City. And the placement director there just kind of always got a chuckle out of that because she always said, you know, you were focused on going back to Mason City right at the beginning. And one of the reasons I did that is I wanted to have a, a couple reasons. One, I wanted to have a, a, a very good uh, quality of life for my, at that time, daughter. I have three kids now, but at the time, my daughter, I was kind of focused on having a good place to raise her and my wife and I being in a place that has a quality of life that is high, um, cost of living that is fairly low. Mm. And then because I have some roots here, that was an extra bonus as well. And so I kind of focused on where I was going to go I wasn't sure what it was all about. They don't really tell you when you go into law school they, uh, what the real practice of law is going to be like. They're much more theoretical and talking to about different, you know, the theories of law and then in the roots and the different cases that have come up. But it doesn't really, 
there's no real class that says, oh, here's what it's going to be like when mm-hmm. you start practicing. Here's the different areas of law that you could practice in. I wasn't sure that there would be a place, an opening in Mason City, Iowa. And so I went to and interviewed for different law firms in Minneapolis and Des Moines and Cedar Rapids, Iowa. Oh, wow. And didn't really get very far with them, um, mostly because I think I was doing always pretty well. And then they would say, well, tell me about yourself. And said, well, I have a a wife and a daughter. And um, I always want to make sure that I'm there for them. And I don't know that the big corporate firms wanted to hear um, that necessarily. They probably wanted to hear you're single, so you can put eight hours a week. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Or or say, you know, my wife does all that stuff, and I just, I'll do all the working and things like that. So I didn't get very far, but this um, one seminar I went to, they said at the end of it, they said, oh, well, if you want to put your resume in, we have some openings uh, at a, at a, the Exxon Corporation down in Houston, Texas is looking for tax lawyers um, or people that are interested in tax. So I put my resume in thinking, yeah, right. And then I got home and uh, I had a message that I was supposed to call down to Houston, Texas. And before I knew it, I was on a flight down there and I had an offer to go there for a summer. And so my wife and I and daughter got into our little car and drove to Houston, Texas for a summer. And uh, I had an offer to go um, to go back uh, after my third year was done. And I would have made double what I what I ended up making here in Mason City to start. Uh, and so but I knew then and I still know now that there would have been a few things that would have come into play. Number one, you would have more money, but you would also have more expense. And Mm -hmm. then also what few people uh, really think about when they're young is that issue of a commute and how much a commute would be in Houston, Texas, which I, I saw firsthand. And I thought I'm a young kid looking at that money and I thought, well, but there's a more to the story. Mm-hmm. And then if you ever do want to move back to Mason city, you'll have to start all over again yeah. because you know, nobody needs a tax uh, oil and gas tax lawyer up in Mason yeah. city. And so I, um, I made the decision to just go law firm to law firm begging for a job essentially. <laughs> <laughs> so you, you lived actually in Houston for three years? No, oh, excuse me. Three oh, months. Three months. Three okay. Months. Okay. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Okay. So in, in at the end of my second year, I went there uh, just, um, and I said three months, but that was because that's how long the whole summer was. I actually was there for a half of a summer. So if uh, my wife was listening, she said, we weren't there that long. And it's like, yeah, you're right. I wasn't there that long. We were there for six weeks. But yeah. in any event, it, it felt at the time a lot longer. And to this day, we still have a soft place in our heart because this is us coming from a small little area in Iowa to a big Houston, Texas. Yeah. I think it was at the time, the fourth biggest in the, in the nation. And so, um, and we adapted really well and did fine and enjoyed it and couldn't, couldn't, could have lived there easily if we really wanted to, but you know, there's something about your roots that are really, really strong. And I also wanted to see my dad and mom and family more than just, um, once a year or once every, you know, few months or things like that. Yeah. Okay. So then you ended up coming back. Uh, what was your first gig back in Mason city? Yeah. The same firm I am right now. I, oh, okay. uh, and, and I was in my second year of law school, I was saying, well, 
I do have a job in Houston, Texas, but I would like to come work for you, you know, work in Mason city for a summer, but I couldn't get anybody to bite on that only because um, I don't think little law firms like up in Mason city here have uh, summer programs really that are, that are set up. And so they said, we would love to do it, but we just can't figure out how. And so maybe give us a call at some other time. So then fast forward to my third year of law school, I was coming up to Mason City various times and a lot of times on a Friday afternoon going to law firms and just saying, is there an opening for me? But the one that, that I ended up going to is the one that uh, I had been in most serious conversations with while I was in law school. And so I was in the, in the fall of my third year I was able to uh, procure a offer from them to start after I was done with law school, which was very relieving. Oh, okay. And you've been with uh, Papa John since then? Yep, I've been with them since 1999. How old were you when your daughter was born? 23. Yeah, that was the same age I was. (laughs) Is that really? Yep. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) And well, then you know how uh, challenging that is. Oh, man. To this day, I don't know how did I do it. It takes so much energy, and and as you know, uh, you've been parenting now, maybe not for you, but for me, I've been parenting longer than I was alive prior to when my daughter was born. And so um, I think one of the things that you realize is, I won't say anybody, but it's a lot harder to parent than it is to procreate. And so the parenting is the hard part oh, and, man. and uh, I consider that a, it's and a is, daily is, battle. What is the biggest memory of your childhood when you sit back days like today, beautiful, nice day, you thinking about you growing up? What are some of the things you go like, oh man, that was awesome. Well, you're talking about the good things and then there's also things that, you know, we have uh, that are meaningful, that are hard parts too. But mm-hmm. yeah, um, I think that the things that I would think about as growing up is the positive things as, um, for an example, I had a, a safe place to, to live. I had an opportunity to, um, play in, in outside in the neighborhood, like, um, you would maybe see on the television. And I was lucky enough to be able to have sort of a group of kids that we would kind of run around and ride our bikes around and do stuff. Um, we had uh, a lot of great memories of you know playing ball in a, somebody's yard that in today's world you would say, did you even ask? Mm-hmm. No, not really. <laughs> we just went and played. Uh, but <clears throat> those kind of things as the friends and the uh, family and, and the feeling of safety that I had. I had uh, you know my best friends uh, from – fourth and fifth grade are still my best friends today. Oh, wow. And we still get together once a year uh, at one of our houses for a weekend and just sit and enjoy each other's company. Mm. And of course, with the advent of technology, now we can text each other in a group at least once a week and uh, have a a laugh or two, and that's worth its weight in gold. So I think those relationships are what I'm the most thankful for. Um, as far as growing up and, um, my childhood was also one in which I got to go to, uh, in the summer times, I got to go to like my grandparents and visit. And, and that was really, really important to me as well as to be able to see them and have experience, uh, their lives a little bit. 
Um, and, and then, uh, I was also in boy Scouts. And so, uh, that was something that I just really wanted for myself. I didn't really have anybody pushing me necessarily. I just really enjoyed it and, and still to this day have great memories from it. Mm. What's some of the hardest part of growing up? I think that the hardest part of growing up was living in that divided household a little bit to the extent that my biological mom um, moved to uh, where she was originally from in New York. Mm -hmm. And my dad raised me, which is one of the reasons that uh, he is so, uh, or, you know, was such a big part of my life was that he was my mother and my father for a period of time. And I think that part, it was hard because not being able to live in a household with your mom and dad is one thing, but when your mom is or one of your parents is completely in a different area and ended up being where I got to see her uh, once a year. Mm-hmm. And so I think that was probably the biggest challenge is because yeah. your heart wants to see somebody more often. And sometimes life just doesn't let you do that. Yeah. Did that leave you the little bit of the sense of uh, abandonment? Cause yeah. I know your stepmom play a huge part in your life. Yeah. A big part. Um, yeah. uh, and, um, you know, she was able to uh, substitute in the things that I was really yearning for. That abandonment was something that was just really, really, really uh, tough for me because it was like Velcro. You would attach, you would go out. I'd spend a month out in New York with my mom and my grandparents, and then like Velcro, you'd rip it apart and yeah. you'd have to detach again. Yeah. So I'd come home and be in a, a lot of grief, um, which was really hard. And then you kind of get used to it again. And then you go about that time. It's the time to go back out again in our mind. Now we could say, Oh geez, that we could maybe figure out a way to kind of get our brain used to that. Or like I said before, kind of calloused a little bit, but unfortunately it doesn't always work like that when you're talking about a a young uh, brain and the young brain is trying to stay safe and doesn't uh, always view what's happening as a ultimate safety. So while you're physically safe, your mind doesn't always, doesn't always feel that way. Mm -hmm. Um, And that, issue itself felt like it would stay pretty uh, predictable. But I remember a couple times, particularly maybe as a, a young adult, or maybe I was, you know, maybe a senior in high school or a freshman in college, and I was watching a movie that was really meaningful about divorce. It was a show called Kramer versus Kramer, and it was a pretty about a pretty bitter divorce. But the fact pattern wasn't exactly the same but some of the mannerisms and the way that the actors carried themselves and pretty soon I was just in tears mm. and it kind of go went to show me that no matter how I processed it uh, I must not have process, been able to process it all the way through and so a lot of people have to deal with divorce and a lot yeah. of people have to deal with um, parents that aren't always in the same town yeah. or things like that I think I would have been able to process that pretty well But then when I was 15, I also had a sexual abuse incident that occurred to me. And that um, was something that I wasn't prepared for. And when that happened, it actually happened at my grandparents' farm, which was a place of safety for me. And so that that feeling of safety and that feeling of of not feeling safe, Safe, yeah, that that sort of accelerated, I think. And so it kind of merged 
the issues and were really, really tough for a while there, and including when I was a, it took me a while to process that, including when I was still at college. We, you were talking before about sometimes you can't grieve mm-hmm. and you have to kick it down the road a little bit. So yeah. that was something that I had to kick down the road a while because at the time, you know, I'm in college, I have to try to be able to pass my classes and then you, you do that. And then yeah. all of a sudden you have a, a wife and a daughter. And so you're trying to take care of that. And then you mm-hmm. got the bar exam and you got your CPA exam, then you got a new job. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't until 2005 uh, that I was able to finally let down my guard enough to go and and go to a a therapist which was of course the best thing i ever did Mm. and the hardest Mm -hmm. but i believe so much in that i'm sort of a walking billboard i don't broadcast it to people but when uh it comes into play it's just a discussion about saying when we all have our hurts and hang-ups all of us do uh, everybody who's out in the street walking around all have the same thing Mm -hmm. does it doesn't mean the same issues but we all have something that's a hurt or a hang up and it doesn't mean that therapy is for everybody but it just means that uh, for somebody like me it really helped at the time to be able to process and to be able to live a a functional life young boy growing up here feel a little bit abandonment from your mother and you have this incident at the age 15 of sexual abuse did you ever talk to your father about that? Yeah. And yeah. how long was it? Because most of the time when these things happen to us, we hold it for a long time. Well, I was lucky enough that it happened to me in July of 1988. And then I went and uh, told my grandparents that I wanted to go back home because yeah. this was only about 90 minutes away. And so we uh, did that. And then I told my mom when she picked me up. And then I told my dad. And dad oh. said... He had a lot of resources at his disposal, and he would bring me some literature and things that maybe I could look at, but he wasn't an expert in psychotherapy or anything like that. For a while, I wasn't really resentful, but I was just more um, wishing that somebody would have mandated that I go to therapy at the time, because it really is like for me anyway, it was like a bullet that just ricochets inside of you. It just created so much more damage in 1988 and 1989 and then 1990 and 91 and 92. And all these people in my high school class would see me and see me that I was this just normal person that did the same things as everybody else. But instead, you're burning inside. inside, My brain just was going crazy. And um, it was actually coming up with a lot of different um, maladaptive behaviors, not mm-hmm. not ones that were that were physical. They yeah. were just all mental maladaptive behaviors to try to learn to cope with it. Mm-hmm. So I don't know how if that would have been something that would have helped or not. So, mm-hmm. I mean, sometimes you have to be ready to go to therapy That's on true. your own. But on the other hand, I didn't really have the opportunity, which I'm not upset with. I'm just more more observing that I wonder if that would have been something that would have helped because. There were a few years there that were, I won't say lost, but they were they were pretty uh, pretty rough. And sometimes where I just didn't have any feeling, sometimes mm. where I felt like I had to, uh, I didn't have anybody I could reach out to to, to talk to about it. Again, somebody oh. that's not a friend or a yep. family. Yeah, and so that's 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 the feeling of abandonment hitting you again. Yeah, back to back. Was was this a family member? Uh, it was a, one of my grandparents' friends, 
but it was somebody that um, my therapist had said, uh, did you ever look at anything, see if, if he had any other criminal history? And, oh. of course, this was something that I never even thought about. And yeah, so I looked cruel. it up, and, yeah, sure enough, he had something or other. And so I thought, well, I mean, I'm a lawyer. I should be able to get to the to, to the, the bottom. bottom of this. Yeah. So um, therapist recommended that, you know, she's just my biggest cheerleader. And she said, well, why don't you – see if there's any, why don't you just get a copy of the court file? So I did. I had to kind of tell the clerk that I believe it's a public matter, even though the uh, matter had been closed. And so sure enough, I did and found out that uh, the perpetrator was, first of all, I found out he was deceased by that time. Mm. Um, but second of all, um, I found out that he had, he was a repeat offender oh. and, and, uh, found, you know, another, uh, couple, two or three victims of his, um, as well. And so that's just something that was, was, uh, something that was actually part of that processing though. Mm -hmm. And I also found out he had, um, some mental limitations and I think it helps for all of us to know when something is uh, something hurts us, whatever it is, to know as much as we can about yeah. it, and I think, well, that's what the ther the therapy uh, principle is. I'm guessing because that's the stuff that we're not really aware that what they're doing is making us go down that path and try to get sm as much facts as possible. Oh, yeah. And so she was able to do that, and she encouraged me to. Um, just figure out as much as I could. I actually went to the cemetery in, up in Minnesota and found his grave. I went and found the house that he was living in. Mm. Um, just things that helped me piece it together. Process, yep. Yeah. And understand a little bit more. You kind of look back on that part of your life and say, I just don't know sometimes how I made it through. Oh, yeah. If had I not got help, I think that there would have been a very big opportunity for things that might not be good for me, such as mm -hmm. do you use alcohol to be able to treat your problems yes. on your issues because it's so hard. I was just uh, breaking into tears uh, for no reason. Well, of course, I thought it was no reason during the day uh, at different kinds of thoughts. And I thought to myself, well, you know, this can't be productive for me at work, number one. Mm -hmm. But then it's not a normal behavior. So what, what can I do that's not self, uh, you know, Medicaid Medicaid. Yep. Yeah, yeah. 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 And so I just decided that, uh, to, to reach out to another lawyer who I knew had a, had a journey of, of getting some help through things. And he, uh, said, well, I think you should go and, and talk to such and such. And I just told myself, I told myself I have to do it because, Things can break down pretty quick if mm -hmm. you if you uh, if if you're in, in need of help and don't get any. And so, uh, just like when you go to the gym, they always say the hardest part about going to the gym is is getting out the door. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, and that's the same thing with therapy. The yeah. hardest thing about it is getting in the door. Not not always worrying about who else is in the waiting room or who's going to see yeah. you. You know, as a result of my own story and my own abuse and the the byproducts of those included thinking that maybe it would be better if I could just take that pain away by doing something to myself. Mm -hmm. And that was actually one of the things that was happening in 2005 as I was spiraling is yeah. I just 
not to say I had a plan. That's different. I didn't mm-hmm. say, oh, um, this is what I'm going to do. But to say that's how big the pressure was, that's how, how much was going on and how much screaming was happening inside of me, that to say that's the ultimate sign of I can't handle this. Yep. And it's just kind of like a boiling uh, pot that it's going to – it's gonna One day it's going to blow up. up. Yep. Yeah, it's like if, yeah. You, if you don't get the help, it's like one day it will blow up. What impact do you want to leave on the planet after it's all said and done and you're gone? We've kind of just been talking about here that he was honest and authentic and he um, worked hard and was nice to others, that um, he was a husband who was also a lawyer. Mm. He was a dad who was also a lawyer. He was a athlete was also a lawyer he was an intellectual who was also a lawyer Mm. not he was a lawyer who was a dad not he was a lawyer who was also uh, you see the difference there so the lawyer is what i do not who i am that's right Mm. that's right and you know i work so i can live and Mm -hmm. instead of living to work i conceptualize death every single day um every day and oh you do yeah i mean particularly since dad passed away Sometimes my brain likes to, since it's logic oriented, it likes to do mental math. And it's like, well, if you live to be how old he was, you only have this many years left. And mm. some would say that's maybe not that healthy, but what it does is it forces me to seize the day. Is your biological mom still alive? Yeah, she oh. lives in New York. Okay. And um, we visit from time to time. We'll just send a text to one another or things like that. And uh, my grandmother is uh, over 95. And, oh, really? And so she's she's still living uh, out in New York. And then grandfather passed away a year after my dad did. Um, and Ooh. so um, and those were the two biggest male influences I had. And so, again, going back to I was really, really happy that I had them for as long as I did. Yeah. It was also hard to lose them both in within a very short period of time, uh, within nine months. Wow, wow. Man, I expected this conversation to be great, but I think it exceeded what I expected <laughs> to be, man. Well, I wasn't expecting that much of myself, so uh, anything is good. Man. So I'm happy to hear that feedback. <laughs> Counselor, I appreciate your time, man. This this was great. I call this non-transactional conversation. I agree. You know, because I know a lot of people know how great lawyer you are, how great accountant you are. Your kids know how great dad you are. But I was like, man, let's talk about the things that connect us as people. So, man, I appreciate your time, Constance. Well, I appreciate it, and thank you very much, man. There you have it, man. All right. Dave the Thank you, sir. Thank you.